Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everyone, from Bristol Studio. This is 94 and More. I'm Jake Fenster. And I'm Professor David Hollander. In this series, we explore how basketball can challenge us to rethink systems and ideologies in service of reimagining our world in new and unexpected ways. Throughout this season, we will be speaking with a variety of guests, from authors to artists, academics to athletes, and many more. All united in a shared love and reverence for basketball, we will bring into focus the game's impact on the greater culture at large. Let's jump in. Jack, how do I say your last name? It's Carol Lettois? Uh, yeah, just think of like a car, Rue Lettois. Yeah. Car, car Lou. Rue. Car, like Rue car, Yeah, with an R, R, Rue. Car, Rue Lettois. Car, yeah, Lettois. There, there you go. Okay. Yeah, it uh, has a little French it's, there. Cool. Today, our guest is Jack Caruletwa. Got it? Got it. Awesome. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. So Dave and I had spoken a lot leading up to this episode about how to introduce you. And I think we kind of got to a place where we feel like your story is so incredible that without letting you kind of dive into it. And so I think how we'd love to start this episode is just really starting with your your background, your upbringing, and, and growing up in Rwanda. So if you can kind of take us through your story from the beginning, I think that would really be a treat for everybody listening. Okay. <clears throat> um, well, uh, I'm, I'm originally from Rwanda, uh, but uh, my family fled uh, Rwanda very long time ago uh, to the point where I actually really just, uh, didn't even grow up in Rwanda. Uh, I grew up in Uganda, um, you know, for many, many years. Uh, and then uh, the political situation there wasn't great either because at the time, the president of uh, Rwanda and the president of uh, Uganda were in cahoots and were, you know, Tutsis like myself were being exterminated and basically being imprisoned and uh, so we had to flee uh, Uganda and move to Kenya. So uh, really, uh, Tutsis have been uh, fleeing the country of Rwanda for many, 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 many years uh, before I was even born. Um, my parents were living in refugee camps in Rwanda, which is usually that's not the norm. Uh, usually you live in a refugee camp outside of your country, uh, not inside your country. But that was a means of control. Um, I myself and my sister and my brothers didn't live in any refugee camps. It, my, more, it was more my mom and dad and their family. Uh, we were fortunate enough to escape to uh, uh, Uganda and then escape again to Kenya. So we lived in, in Uganda and in Kenya. Uh, and then for many, many years uh, living in Kenya, we pretended to not to be Rwandese or Tutsis. You know, uh, our parents had almost even trained us to try and land learn uh, the languages of the local country. You know, we learned how to speak Swahili. Uh, we always pretended we want uh, the part of Rwandan community uh, just to stay low-key and, and, and really kind of protect ourselves. Um, you know, we grew up in a home where we saw a lot of people constantly coming in and out. Uh, at the time, being so young, we didn't understand or know what was going on. We, we just thought it was mom and dad's friends coming in and out. But sometimes, you know, people would leave with our clothes, with our shoes, or that we would have to share beds and share rooms. But really, it was people who were escaping and using my parents' home as a safe home until they found something of their own. Uh, this continued for many, many, many years. Um, and then things in Kenya started getting a little rough and hectic. But at the same time, there was a small movement of young Ugandans and Rwandans who wanted to go home uh, because there were also some Ugandans who were living in Kenya who wanted to go back home because at the time there was this president, uh, Idi Amin. I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard of Idi Amin. I'm sure, David, you have a little older than Jake. Um, and, uh, Take it easy, Jack. <laughs> well, I, said, I said a little. Um, but um, 
they 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 also wanted to go back home. So there was you know a small movement of people, young guys who kind of created a small military and and went back to Uganda and then we also went back to Uganda but everything was always in the middle of the night. It was always out of fear. It was out of uh, running away. So there was never a comfort zone both living in Uganda or, or Kenya. Um and then while living in Uganda uh, a, a, a young group of Rwandans decided they wanted to go back to Rwanda. You know, say, hey, we, we've been away from home for decades. It's, it's time to go home. And then through all that, you know, uh, there was a, a killing that started in 94, uh, uh, 1994. Now, meanwhile, I had just moved from Uganda to the U.S. in December of 93. Uh, and a friend of my dad said, said look, I'll, I'll, I'll host your son because there was rumbles of this genocide that was about to begin. At the time, nobody knew it was going to be a genocide. Everybody just knew it was going to be a civil war. You know, there was rumbling. So just to jump in really quick. Yeah. So you you left to the States by yourself? Yes. Or with your family? Well, by myself. Um, like I, I, Well, when I say by myself, my dad literally just brought me and dropped me off and left and went back. Uh, and he uh, unfortunately was always on the go because he was one of the people that, uh, you know, had had to keep moving because, you know, we had found out that, you know, they wanted to basically kill him, assassinate him, um, uh, only because of the, the, the support that he had given young Rwandans and uh, Rwandans who weren't able to support themselves. You know, he had, pre- you know, created a safe haven for them or supported them or supported the small militia that was trying to go back. Um, uh, and, and they were like, you know, anybody that was supporting a group that was trying to go back home, they had to be exterminated. So my dad was always on the go. Even when I got to the U.S., he was still on the go in Africa, moving from country to country to country, just trying to stay away. Um, and then uh, some of my family members had refused to leave Rwanda. And of course, they paid the ultimate price and, 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 and a lot of them were killed. Um, lucky for me, I was here in the U.S. Uh, going to school. I was able to then get a basketball scholarship. Uh, went to Grand Canyon University, uh, continued my basketball studies, uh, and, and kind of immersed myself in, in basketball to kind of not forget, but to, so I wouldn't think about what was going on, you know? Uh, so basketball, school, Meanwhile, there's a civil war going back home. I, I, I was totally a mess. And then I lost touch with my parents for a quick second, only because they had gone back to Rwanda once the genocide started to go help. Um, you know, dead bodies everywhere. Uh, my mom and dad were there trying to help and support. Uh, then one of my brothers ended up coming. Then my sister came. So we all kind of came slowly uh, once I got here. Uh, but meanwhile, we were all still just trying to get away. Um, and, and again, this I didn't experience as bad as some of the Rwandans that actually lived in Rwanda and stayed in Rwanda. And, and either one, they couldn't leave, you know, because they had nowhere to go. Or, or two, they just didn't get a chance to leave if they could, you know. Um, it, it was brutal. Um, but, but now... We're, it, you know, we're fortunate enough to to have a president that has done a lot of good for us. Jack, let me let me ask you. Uh, you know, even as a child, when you were in Uganda and then uh, to the states, what was the feeling like to not be able to say "I am this" or or be fully out loud about who you are and and what what did that feel like? It, it, it's weird because in the beginning, it felt bad. You felt like you wanted to say who you are. But you had more fear of if somebody knows what's going to happen to me or my sister or my brother or my mom or my dad. So it almost, it almost, became, it almost became the norm. It's almost like someone who knows that they're not going to have a meal in the morning. They, they're not expecting it. So it's, it's just it's not there. Uh, but at the same time, your main concern is, is everybody else okay? It's almost like you don't think about yourself. You're thinking, how are they doing? How is it over there? Um, and then at the same time, always someone say, well, 
or if they or if they knew that your accent was not from Uganda or from Kenya, they were, they would question. They go, are, "Are you really from Kenya?" And then that's when your heart rate would kind of go up. Are, are you really from Uganda? And then you yeah. your, your heart because you knew you were living a lie, but but you couldn't come out and say, "No, you're, you're right. I'm actually from Rwanda." You know, um, but but you knew it was it was like survival mode. You know, it, it's what you had to do to just make sure that you were okay and nobody found out to then do some sort of harm or anything to your mom and dad or, or siblings. And it, it sounds like somewhere at some point, the basketball court became a place where you said you were able to not think about it. What, how, how did that, you know, mind shift? It's funny because in living in Africa during my childhood, soccer, football, we call it football, was, was it. It was either that or track and field. Um, and people just wanted to run marathons or 10Ks or 5Ks because we, we knew we, the sports people we knew were the locals who, who were successful in long-distance running. But we knew of basketball. We just didn't have basketball in Africa, but we knew of it. Uh, so when I came, it was a sport that I, had, I knew of, but I loved. So now here was an opportunity for me to say, wait, I'm seven feet tall and I've always loved this game and now it's here. So I started playing. I started playing it to the point where I did it almost like a job. I, I, I literally would go from, for, well, for two reasons. One, I, I, I loved it. And two, it made me forget about the situation at home. So when I was playing, I was almost in a, uh, I was in almost in, in, in a, not, in, not in a zone, so to speak, but in, in a mindset of where I didn't think about anything. I didn't think about what I had to do next. I didn't think about if I had homework. I didn't think about what time it was. I was just gone. And I, I would do it eight hours a day. I would go from literally from park to park to park until it was dark. And then I would just go home. And then the next day, I would rush to get to the same park so I could get, you know, first picks. You know? So, yeah, basketball was, was a savior for me. I think that's um, really interesting because it's something that we talk about a lot, right? When you play basketball, you kind of can't hide who you are. Um, you know, how you play your, your style of play reflects who you are as a person a lot of times. And I think right. hearing your story and you kind of had to create this, this way of living that you're living this lie, but it becomes your reality. And then on the basketball court, you kind of get that chance to just be with yourself and, and be who you really are. And I wonder how much that helped you, you know, coming from that upbringing, coming from that state of fear and, and always trying to stay under the radar. I wonder how much that helped you kind of find yourself and mature and, and, you know, adapt to a different sort of lifestyle in the U.S. Oh, it was, it, it, it was a huge, a huge difference for me. Uh, one, when I came to this country, I was very shy and I was very quiet. Now, I don't know if that came from being told, don't say who you are, hide who you really are. But I spoke very little. I never spoke at all. I was very quiet. I just did my schoolwork, got on the, got on the bus, went home, just did, didn't, didn't speak. I didn't try to talk to girls. I didn't try to make friends. Uh, I was very quiet. But basketball taught me how to communicate uh, because I always played with guys who had more experience but would get mad at me. For, I'll give you an example. If somebody wanted to set a screen on someone and it was my guy who would go set a screen on someone, I wouldn't open my mouth. So my teammates would start to get mad at me because I wouldn't communicate and let them know, hey, someone's coming to set a screen on the right or the left. So small things like that started teaching me how to be more verbal, communicate, and, and talk, uh, you know, and, and talk during the game. So that helped me, one, start be me be start to be more um vocal you know speak out say stuff and have confidence i feel like I, I was one of everybody else i was on equal grounds and it just taught, it gave me confidence in speaking it gave me confidence in being around people because i enjoyed where i was so i felt like okay here i can open my mouth here i can talk here i can laugh you know i i, I felt freedom there you know, and I would, I, I mean, literally, I would play for so long. People would go and come back and go, you're still here? You know, so. Well, you, you, you know, you, you had this extraordinary 
uh, a history of being displaced, of being not of uh, a, a place and time. And the word communicate, as you say, it's the same root as community. You finally got to be, you know, it, it wasn't like you're this or that. You're part of right. our game. Yeah, absolutely. You, you feel like you're part of, you know, you feel like, okay, this guy's got your back and that guy's got your back and you got his back. So there was always a, I feel like there was a common goal. You know, we always wanted to be, okay, tomorrow we'll be the same five group again. You know, so that, that became your community, your little tribe, so to speak. You know, you wanted to always be together, you know. Uh, even after basketball, you would go to the McDonald's or you'd, you'd go to 7-Eleven and get the Slurpees, but, but together, you know. So that gave me a sense of uh, belonging, kind of, you know. Have you found I mean, you've done so many different things, and and we'll we'll talk more about now where you're, all the other things you're doing now. But have you found any any other kind of space where that kind of communication, that exquisite of a, a community feeling, happens? Uh, it's funny. I use I literally use basketball for everything I do. So I don't know if I've found another place, but what I found myself doing is wherever I am, I incorporate basketball in, in, in like I'll, if I'm with my wife or my son, I say in basketball, if, or it's just like basketball, like I relate basketball to every situation, you know, whether he's disciplining my son or whether he's telling him, learn how to listen. I say, well, if you don't listen, then a coach can't play you. If you don't listen, you're not going to know what plays next. So I always use listening or whatever I'm trying to teach him or explain to my wife in basketball, even in work. So I, I don't know if I can really answer it that way, but I can answer it backwards and say I use basketball in everything else that I do. You know, even just my own work, my own work ethic, my own whatever. I always use basketball as a reference point, you know, to, to do whatever I'm doing. Can, can you speak a little bit more to growing up? You know, soccer was a dominant sport, like you said, or, or track. So how come soccer didn't stick with you? Obviously, you're, like you said, you're seven feet tall, right. which I imagine is pretty tough to play soccer when you're seven feet tall. But, yeah. you know, growing up, what was it that, you know, didn't connect or looking back on it that didn't connect in the same way that basketball did? Well, it, uh, in, in Africa then, Rwanda, Kenya, at least the countries that I, you know, were, where I lived, we didn't have uh, basketball hoops all over the place. Like, it's here. So the opportunity wasn't there. Uh, soccer is easy. We made soccer out of everything. You know, we made soccer out of uh, trash bags, plastic bags. You roll enough of them, you have a soccer ball. So, uh, and, and in not having uh, baskets, uh, you know, uh, goals are easy. You can use two trees as a goal. You know, you can get a basket uh, and, and stack up some stones and say, these are the goalposts. So accessibility was one, you know, if there's no access to the sport, you know, the ball or the basket, you don't, you don't play the sport. So you, you, you play what the older generation played. Coming here, there's hoops everywhere, outdoors, indoors, everywhere. And it's dominated. It's a, it's a, it's a sexy sport. It's a popular sport. Uh, soccer for, uh, is also, a, you know, a popular sport. But it, it, I just found that there was more joy and there was more, it, there was so many little things that, whether it's a good pass, a good dunk, a good rebound, a good block, there was always joy, immediate joy, little small moments of joy. But soccer was always a build-up. It took a long time to build up. You could play 80 minutes and nothing really happened. And then all of a sudden, boom, it explodes. But in, in basketball, I felt like there was this, and then there was this, and then there was this. Just constant something, something. And that, that's what I like. And that's why I gravitate towards basketball more than anything else. These quick moments of joy in everything. You know, a block shot, a behind-the-back pass, a dunk, you know, a, a last-second three, you know. So that intrigued me that I enjoyed and that is what made me gravitate more towards basketball here than soccer or anything else uh, here in America you know you've also had some experience in Canada and family in Canada right. uh, and I wonder what you 
make of the way basketball, we're talking about basketball and soccer. I wonder what you make of the way basketball has kind of taken over hockey, particularly with new Canadians, people coming from all over the world to Canada. What, what, what have you kind of observed and appreciated in, in what's going on in that country? Well, I, I, I always go back to um, affordability, especially for minorities or people that are not, don't have enough, uh, you know, money to do anything. Uh, uh, soccer, I mean, um, basketball can be played by anyone. You don't, you don't need a lot of money to, to play basketball. Uh, one person could have a basketball and it'll make 25 people happy, you know, because five on five on five on five, you know, you lose, you sit the next group. So one basketball could make 50 people happy. You know, you have uh, three groups of five, you're, you're going to make basketball. Hockey. Jake, he's, he's talking about sharing the basketball. Oh, okay. That's what he's talking about. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, Something uh, I know nothing about. Uh, you, well, you pass it and uh, you're not getting no, it back. No, <laughs> no actually, that's, uh, that's Luke. That's yeah, whenever I play with Luke, <laughs> and I know he's listening, so. You, you pass him the ball and that's it, huh? He, it's pass just, him the ball. I, I set the back screens. He's not looking for it. He's just <laughs> yeah. jacking the three. He hits it. He hits him. So, I can't blame so, him. So with Luke, you pass him the ball and you just start running back on D, basically. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, exactly. I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Right. And in, in Canada, what I've seen is a lot of the international players, whether they're coming from Europe, or Africa, you know, there's a lot of African players that are coming from Africa playing in Canada, being drafted by Maasai. Uh, again, it's that, it's, it's weird. It's simple, but it's not simple. It's a simple game. It, it can be learned quickly. It can be played anywhere. And like I said, there's so much joy throughout the entire game. All 48 minutes or 40 minutes, there's joy, joy, joy. Does, do, do you think because of where Masai, his background, where he comes from, does he see things in, in other players and other talent that other people miss yes. because of his, his view? Tell me about that. Yes, yes. Um, I, I think what he tries to do is he tries to build a complete team because you get, he understands that some players love to rebound. And he understands that some players love to pass. And I always try to teach my son, you can't have everybody on the team as a great shooter because that's what they want to do. You can't have, you have to have a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of it to make a complete piece. And I tell him, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. If every piece was designed the same, you would never have a complete picture. So in his case, he brings pieces that are going to, click and interlock with another piece, right? Because then the player is not mad if he only gets six attempts to shoot the ball because that's not his desire. His desire is to play really good defense. His desire is to get a lot of block shots. So he wins with teams that don't look as sexy but are very efficient, you know? And I feel that that's how when the Raptors won, they didn't have a lot of, you know, sensational players, they had players with a lot of substance. So I feel like pieces matter. You can't just have everybody wanting to shoot the ball. Oh, that, and, that's the game. I, yeah. I, I remember people used to say the Spurs were boring. And I was like, what's so boring about five championships? Yeah. They, they, they had more substance than flair. And at the end of the game, at the end of the game, that's what we're all looking for. But during the game, sometimes people are just looking for flair. But when you don't win, they're like, well, where's the substance? You know, how yeah. come you only got two rebounds? How come you only got two rebounds? You know? So, but yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, uh, substance is uh, over flair any day for me. Yeah, no, I think that that's a, a great point. And I think, especially when you look at today's era of basketball, there is... Um, there's a lot of celebration around these like talents and, and players who do a little bit of everything. But I think we're kind of seeing this resurgence of like those, those kind of role players, right? The players that like, if you look at the Warriors, right? Let's look at like Gary, Gary Payton, um, the second, right? right? They're missing him this year. And he's yep. not somebody that on paper you would be like, Oh, that guy's an important piece of the team. But when you remove them, you realize, okay, when, when that player is 
giving that extra effort, what is that doing to the guys around them? You know, and they're right. they're diving into the stands, they're right. they're hustling for every loose ball, and they're not asking for every shot, but right. they're doing it because they love the game, they have a passion for the game, and they realize, like you said, there's a lot more substance in that than just you know shooting fadeaway threes, and the, you know, right. there's an important role needed there, and we're and we're starting to see the game kind of go back to that. Right. I wonder what that looks like, especially in this new era where everyone's talking about Steph Curry changing the game and three-point shooting, and you got all these kids shooting three-point shots as soon as they come off half court. You know, for you having been a coach and coaching players, like, what is that like to watch? And then oh. how do you feel about seeing this, you know, resurgence of those fundamentals or, or the substance and those different types of role players coming back? I, I mean, I, I appreciate Steph Curry, and I appreciate what he's done for basketball and the incredible shooting skill that he has. He, you know, Clay Thompson and uh, who's the guy from Portland. Uh, I mean, their shooting is unreal. The problem, it's, it's, it's one out of a million, you know, that's the problem. And it's, 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 it's making basketball ugly. You know, there's no pick and roll. Big guys don't want to post up. There's no post moves. Footwork is non-existent. You know, there's a lot of traveling because they have this funny step back that is a travel every single time. (laughs) It's, you know, and there's no chemistry. And I keep telling my son, that's why Gonzaga kills everybody all the time. They're fundamentally sound. Yes, they may seem boring because they're not doing the, you know, travel step back, you know, but it's, it's, it hurts me because when I was coaching, I was a big believer in fundamentals. I was a big believer in looking up and passing the ball. I was a big believer in you pass and you cut. You know, I was a big believer in if somebody has a, 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 a better shot than you, you pass it. Even you may have a good shot, but that guy has a better shot. You pass it. Um, you know, I was, I was a true believer in that. And, and I still am. So sometimes I... I, I I get in a struggle where I'm trying to teach my son, but he's watching something on TV and I'm trying to influence him to watch more NCAA basketball as opposed to NBA basketball, you know, but uh, it's, 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 it's sad. You can't really do anything about it. I'm just hoping that it, like you said, it turns back to what it used to be, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, let it stay competitive, but let it stay right. Where, where do you think you found that, that coaching style was that from your own experience at Grand Canyon when you were playing in college? Was that what you were taught, or where did that come into your life, and and how did that become something that you felt you know you could rely on and and was actually you know actually useful to teach the next generation of players? Uh, I think for me it came from just the way I was raised, really, uh, to share. Um, my, I saw my parents share and give and share and give. To this day, my mom gives and gives, you know, gives to the point where sometimes say, mom, you, you give so much, you're left with nothing, you know? And, and even, even the way I play, I, I tend to pass first before I shoot. Um, I mean, I'll shoot, but if, if I see somebody cut for me, I, I have, I, I have joy in passing it. Uh, and thank God my son is going that route too, because I believe anybody can shoot. You know, are you going to make it or not? I don't know. But passing and sharing, I feel there's something good in sharing, uh, you know, in, in, in just in life in general, but also on the court. You know, when you share, and I was trying to remind kids, look at Jason Kidd, you know. Everybody wants to play with Jason Kidd, you know. Everybody wants to play with a passer, a giver. Nobody wants to play with someone who's just going to jack and jack and jack. You know, you go to the park, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I don't want... You know, people start picking guys who know they're either going to pass or they're going to run back on defense. That's who guys pick when they go to the park because the goal is to win. And I feel my life of growing up sharing, we all succeeded. So you never had to look over your shoulder and worry about who's coming to get yours, you know? Yeah, yeah, someone's always going to get more than the other, but the aspect of sharing, I feel makes makes a better group, you know? And, and I, I guess that's how my, maybe my game and my coaching style just evolved. You know, I, I, I love what you're saying because you're, you're talking about the joy of playing the game in that kind of sharing. And is there a game that you know of that has a more constant, 
opportunity to share than basketball? Nope. I don't. I mean, five people, small space. It's going on. Yeah, absolutely. It's that chemistry. And people use that word, oh, they have good chemistry. They have good chemistry, you know, because mentally they think the same way. That's, that's my belief. They think the same way. I've seen people cut and not get the ball. And they're wide open, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and like you said, it's the pleasure of it. Yeah. I actually feel pleasure when I'm, when I'm having that connection with somebody else so fluidly, constantly. Yep. You're open. I pass it to you. I'm open. You pass it to me. Yep. So going, going back to your college experience, actually playing basketball, what was that like? You know, uh, take us through that whole experience. Uh, initially, it was fast. Everything was fast-paced. Uh, that's when I realized, man, watching the game and playing the game is two totally different things. One, you don't realize how fast people are, and you don't, believe, you don't realize how strong people are. Uh, I've seen guys on TV who look skinny, but when you play them, you don't realize how strong they are. You know, and and I had to learn how to because basketball is not about speed fast. It's more about to me anticipating what's a what's going to happen next. If you if you don't know what's going to happen next, you're always going to be a second late. And in basketball, second late is game over. It's mm-hmm. game over. So I had to change my mindset on how I played. Because at first I used to be like, almost I was one of those players who turned their head and then went. As opposed to anticipating, okay, I see Icon, he's going to pass. You start moving before, as they're going like this. So you start moving as the player is reaching back over his head to throw that pass is when you start moving. You can't start moving when the ball's in the air. So I had to learn one, a different way of changing my mind when I started playing to make me quicker. Not really quicker as in um, foot speed, but quicker in my decision-making to either go left or go right or go forward or go backwards. Um, so that took training. So I guess they call it timing when you're playing. His timing is off. He's, he hasn't played in a while. His timing is off. That's one thing I had to really change because being, you know, fast, because I was considered fast for a big guy, but... I was always a second late, even when I guarded guys who were way slower than me because their timing was right and mine was wrong. Um, so I had to learn how to change that. But um, it was good. I was fortunate to have a coach that believed in me. Uh, and then I was fortunate enough to have two players that actually cared. And, and the funny thing is they played the same position as I did. So yeah. they, they, they would be like, Jack, let's go work on our game. Jack, let's go work on our game. And I liked that. It, it, it helped me grow as a player. And I'll tell you a funny story. I wanted to learn how to play so bad that I asked my coach if I could actually practice with the girls before the boys practice. So I would go practice with the girls like three-man weave, mm-hmm. um, you know, three-on-two, two-on-one, because I wanted to understand how it worked, how you helped you know, the help, which person helps first. And then understanding you help the helper kind of thing. So I almost understood it like, oh, see, they, everybody's kind of looking out for each other. So I'm helping that guy, but then this guy's helping me. But I wanted to understand the rotation and the body movement because there's a flow in how you move, you know, with where the ball is. But I didn't have that. So I figured if I did it with the girls and then I did it, I would do it so much that it just became muscle memory, you know? So that's, that's, that's how I, 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 I looked at the game and I just practiced a lot, but I was happy that I had a coach that believed in me and players that supported my growth. He's yeah. making me want to play. Ah. <laughs> He's talking yeah. about it. Same, yeah. honestly. Um, uh-huh. So how, what, how long did you play? Was it all four years in college or? Um, I was at, it wasn't all four years. I I actually, when I first came, I went to a junior college here in LA, at El Camino College. But I, I took a placement test, and my coach was like, "You don't need to be in a junior college. You need to be in a university already." Um, and 
uh, I run into a coach who introduced me to George Raveling, uh, who used to coach for USC. And then he introduced me to another coach, and they, he said, look, I, I could use this player. And originally, I was actually supposed to go to Arizona State, but I think Arizona State was just finalizing an investigation of, uh, of uh, players who were losing to, to, uh, to get paid. They were losing on purpose. Uh, in fact, I know one of them. He's a referee. He's a now buddy of mine. A headache and this other this other guy. Um, and, and I think they made a movie about it. Actually, yeah, yeah, it sounds uh, familiar. Yeah, yeah uh, but uh, he's a referee now, and I see him every day for my son's game. But I I ended up playing at a at a junior college for one year, and then I transferred and got a scholarship to Grand Canyon. But I was almost done with school, so. And I was also at the time still worried about the situation at home. Uh, I, I, my, my studies kind of started taking a, a downward slope because I couldn't study. I was constantly thinking about home. So I played one year in junior college and one year at uh, Grand Canyon University. And then I decided to just come back home. And, and coming back home is when I you know, met Magic at, at UCLA and started playing with him uh, on his uh, travel team. Uh, and that's where really my basketball IQ on my basketball skills kind of just you know, yeah. went through the roof. Yeah. So take us through that. How, how did you meet Magic? How did you start that relationship? Yeah, that was, that was very weird. Uh, I actually, I went with a friend who was on Magic's travel team. Uh, and they used to practice at UCLA in the men's gym. So I went just to go watch. And, and uh, when they started doing their drills, you know, they had enough people to do their three-man weave. But then when it came to play five-on-five, they only had nine people. So they looked at me, they go, do you want to play? So I was like, "Uh, yeah. My hesitation was, I'm not as good. I I don't want to screw up. So so that was my hesitation. But I eventually stepped in and started playing. And uh, Magic put, put me on his team. And he just basically told me, you stay here. Anybody comes in, block it and just get the rebound and give it to me. Like, okay, all right, you know, so that's what I did. I kind of stood there, waited. (laughs) You know, somebody came, I blocked their shot, got the rebound, gave him the ball. Then he looked at me, he goes, What are you doing tomorrow? I said, "Uh, Nothing. He said, Okay, come back tomorrow. And literally, he kept telling me, Come back tomorrow, come back tomorrow. And when was this timeline? Oh, this was 90, 99, 98, 99. Yeah, 97, 98, 99. He was like, You know, keep coming back. So, one day I would go. One day we would have the practice at UCLA. Another time we would have it at Spectrum Club in uh, in Torrance. Sometimes we'd have it at Twenty Four Hour Fitness in uh, Hollywood. So they would always tell us where it was going to be. Uh, so I just you know started practicing with him, and and my game really got a lot better playing with him. You know, talking through the game, learning through the game, and then through that I I, I met Kiki Vandeweghe. And then I got fortunate enough, I got invited to the NBA big man's camp in Hawaii, uh, Pete Newell big man camp. Um, and, and that got me even closer to the NBA. And through that, I met uh, Mike Dunleavy uh, on his last year as a coach for the Clippers. And uh, I, was, I was this close to making the team, but I had broken my legs on a motorcycle uh, when I came to this country. So I have metal in my leg. So... When they, when they saw my scars on my medal, it kind of gave them a little pause. Like, are you sure you're okay? I'm like, well, you saw me play. You didn't know I had, you had no idea I had scars in my, in my leg until you saw my, you know, took down my shorts and they could see my scars. Uh, so that kind of derailed the whole dream of, you know, making it to the NBA. But this, the whole time they saw me play, no one had an, any idea that I'd ever broken my legs. But the scars, I guess, kind of, you know, I guess liability was like, you know, it's, 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 uh, we, we can't invest too much on this guy. I want to ask more about it. What was that big man camp like in Hawaii? Oh, it was crazy. What was that experience? It, yeah, it, was, it, it was, one, it was heaven. I'd never had such an experience. I mean, you know, wine and dine, you know, bus, bus rides, professional bus rides to the gym, people handing you towels, water, snacks everywhere, fruit. I mean, even that alone is awesome. You know, yeah. um, you know, you got all these guys who have been drafted number one. Mike Oliver-Candy is there and everybody's there. Jake Vocal. I mean, everybody there was either a, a sophomore in the NBA or they'd just been drafted uh, in the NBA. I was the only, literally, I think, the only player there that wasn't either. Uh, but I had gotten an invite. 
Uh, and it was it was heaven for me. And I I, I was like, I'm, I, I'm almost there, you know? I'm almost there. Just keep working. But meanwhile, nobody knows my my history. Nobody knows that I, I, I didn't have money. Nobody knows I couldn't get a job. I didn't have a social security number. I, I was just going from friend's house to friend's house to friend's house. You know, I, I, I had nothing. Um, and, and, and then, you know, slowly I was like, okay, this NBA thing's not going to work out. But that, that, those few days we were in Hawaii was awesome. How was that to be there in that heaven, as you described, but at the same time dealing with what was going on back home and being away? Uh, were you able to be fully present in that moment and, and just appreciate that opportunity in that time? Or was there still a part of your mind that was going back home? There was only really two things, and I'll never forget them. One was succeed here and you can help your family situation, you know? And if you don't succeed here, you're in trouble. So for me, it was like, it was more than just basketball. There was, yes, there was the joy of basketball, but there was something more. It was being able to help back home. If I can succeed here, uh, by then I had known how it's such a great pay, the lifestyle is amazing. But for me, it was like, if I make it here, I can help my whole family back home, you know? And, and that's, that was my main, my main concern, was like, do well here, and mom and dad will be okay, your brother will be okay, your sister will be okay, your auntie and uncle will be okay. Because that's, that's how we, we did everything. If my dad did well, he took care of his brothers and sisters, and, you know, vice versa. So that was really my drive, you know? Uh, and that's, that's how I looked at it. It was more like survival. So when you realized that the NBA dream was no longer a reality and you had gotten close, but it just wasn't going to happen, what next? What happened then? Well, what happened next for me was um, I, I knew that if I made it in the NBA, besides helping my, my parents and my siblings, I knew that I always wanted to start a business. My dad was a businessman. And my dad had always told us, all of us, you know, his kids said, never work for the government and always be your own businessman. Like, be self-employed. He, those are the two things he always engraved in our head. Work for yourself and never work for the government. Uh, because in Africa, it's different. People work for the government because you just want to make money. In, in the U.S., it's different. You, you, you're not going to make any money if you work for the government. You know, you have to be private. Private, private person. Well, I, I, that's how it used to be when I came. Um, but so I knew play professional basketball, take care of family. That didn't happen. And then I knew that I always wanted to have a coffee business uh, because I knew my dad did uh, coffee transportation. He transported coffee from the Congo, from Burundi, Uganda, to the ports in Tanzania and Mombasa. And this coffee was always shipped out. And when I came to the U.S., both my dad and I couldn't believe how much coffee was consumed in this country. There was just coffee shops everywhere. We were like, coffee shop there, coffee shop there. We were like, so many coffee shops. So I knew, get into coffee, you know? Um, so I couldn't really, I had to start from zero, from ground zero, you know? And ground zero meaning I, one, learn how to learn the business, uh, how the whole process worked. How do I get coffee from Africa to the U.S.? And then how do I begin to sell it? And uh, my brother was also also in, in the coffee business right when I started. But what I did was I first found out who had coffee from Rwanda. And there was this small coffee supplier in Seattle. Uh, and I think it was in, uh, uh, not Spokane or Washington, but in really small up Pacific North uh, location. I can't remember the name. But I contacted them and they sent me Rwandan coffee. And they sent me... I think 10 bags, well, I bought them and they sent me 10 bags. So what I did is I cut them in half because it was 10 one pound bags. So I cut them in half. Now they're all eight ounce, eight ounce, eight ounce. So I, I started going, you know, door to door, you know, going to people's homes and people's, uh, people that I knew, parents that I coached, you know, Luke's parents, anybody that I knew that drank coffee, I tried to give them the sample. Hey, what do you think about this coffee? Hey, what do you think about this coffee? I went restaurant after restaurant after restaurant, coffee run out. Nobody's contacted me, you know? Uh, so I, I did it again. I, and then I kept doing it again. Meanwhile, uh, for me to make money, I had some friends who, whose uncles did demo, 
demolition stuff. You know, they, they go and dem- demolish homes for them to rebuild or whatever. So I'd just go work on the weekends and make some money, you know, and then started coaching. So between coaching with George and doing demo, that's how basically I survived while I tried to get this coffee thing off the ground. You know, get more coffee, sample it out, sample it out, sample it out, you know. Uh, and, and the more I did it, the more I saw that there was people, people started giving me feedback saying, this coffee's really good. Uh, and then I knew it was from Rwanda, but then I didn't know how to get my own, you know. Uh, so I just kept pushing and pushing. And my push kind of came from, from basketball, really, you know, because all I knew was, you know, just push through it, you know, push. I just you keep hearing your coach's voice, you know, my, you know, my ankle hurts. you got to play with the ankle. Go, go tape it up. Go tape it up and play. Go my shoulder. Just tape it up, you know. Uh, ice it, you know. But but you kept playing, you know. Uh, okay, you missed a layup. So the drive came for me from playing basketball. But I knew that if I succeeded now in the coffee business, I would be doing a couple of things. One, I would be supporting the country rebuild, which was on top of the list for me. We would be we would be selling a a, a homegrown. A natural product, uh, and, and it would it would help me in this country to be able to survive and live because I knew coffee was such a successful business in this country. So I just kept pushing, but it was not easy. It, it I should have given up so many times, but the the this mentality of an athlete is is different. If you have a game plan and you push the way you push in practice and in games. You, you'll do well. And I just kept pushing. And, you know, I, I was fortunate. I started getting some hits. And uh, some of the restaurants would say, hey, we love your coffee, but you got to do this, you know, do the equipment for us. So I, I hit a snack. So they like the coffee, but then they want coffee equipment. I couldn't afford the equ- coffee equipment. And then I discovered credit cards. <laughs> I discovered credit cards. I didn't know anything about credit cards in this country. I just, everything was cash. So someone said, apply for a credit card. So I did. And the first two credit cards I got, I think one was for seven grand, another was for 10 grand. <laughs> Went and bought equipment. Got a couple of my first accounts. Uh, and that's how, you know, my coffee started growing, you know. Uh, and then for a minute there, I was just buying coffee from suppliers who would import Rwandan coffee but now I'm in the process of now where I actually grow my own coffee in Rwanda, ship my own coffee and roast my own coffee. Um, but it's been slow and steady, you know. Can you, can you talk more about that motivation in this coffee business for you to empower economically Rwanda, Rwandans? Uh, how, how is that still alive in you? You know, where, where, where's this going for you? Well, it's it's going well. One, we're fortunate because we have a government that su- supports the locals there and also supports the diaspora that's out, you know. Um, so if you're doing something and they know you're doing something that, one, you're helping the economy back home, you're helping the farmers, especially, especially local farming, they support you 100%. So for me, it's it's going well, but it's been... It's been, it's, it's been hard, but I have the drive. And I have the drive because of, again, I, I, and this is what I was talking about, always going back to sports and you're going back to basketball. Just the drive of wanting to win, you know, the drive of wanting to do well, the drive of, you know, have no excuses comes from basketball. So my, my drive of the business was one, if I do well, I'm being, I'm helping the country develop. Uh, like I said, we have a great government, great president. And if I can do something to give back, then I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing good. I'm doing my part as a Rwandan, but I'm also doing good in this part of the world, supporting and helping hire people to, 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 you know, to reduce unemployment. You know, it's not that big of a difference in the big scheme of things, but it's, it's, it's doing my part. And, and, and I incorporate basketball and I incorporate giving back. Coincidentally, across the continent, there seems to be a fairly recent push to use the game of basketball for 
endogenous local economic empowerment. Your friend Masai, through the wonderful organization Giants of right. Africa, a hundred courts across the, the the continent. What do you think? Is basketball really an economic development driver across the continent of Africa? I, I think so. I think so. At least in Rwanda, it looks like it is. You know, and it's 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 become a movement. You know, people are watching. Uh, a lot of NBA. Uh, I have. I see a lot of kids in in Africa doing their own training, dribbling skills, and and understanding that whoa, this is this can change me. This can change uh, n- not only me and my family and my community. You know. So it's it's. I see other organizations. There's an organization that I'm working with. They're based out of Boston. It's called Shooting Touch. Uh, great, great organization, and they're doing a lot in Rwanda also. You know, they're teaching people how to to uh, work together. They're teaching people how to take care of their bodies. Uh, they're teaching people how um, sports not only gives you uh, good health, but it also it, it it's 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 therapy. And especially yeah. for Rwanda, mental health is huge. You know, because all the all the young kids and uh, young babies and teens that went through the whole genocide are now adults. But sports, basketball especially, has grown immensely. And I'm not talking about just the capital city. I'm talking about out in the rural areas. These people that are building basketball courts because it gives them joy. So, but for them, it's mental. It's mental health, you know. So it's, it's, it's growing in, the, in, in that aspect, but it's also growing in, in financial to improve, they, they, Rwanda just built an amazing stadium, but that's also giving people jobs. It's giving people entertainment. It's giving people joy. So it's 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 slowly replicating everywhere. In Rwanda, you know, Senegal already had basketball. Kenya, Uganda, they're thinking about having inter-African basketball games, and you know, you have. Athletes from here and musicians and entertainers going there and, and and helping grow it. But yes, it's it's absolutely enhancing and growing uh, over there. You know, it it it's definitely going to make a difference. Yeah, no, it's it's exciting to just see how how much this game is growing globally and. And I think everything you've talked about with your story, you know, seeing seeing what that can do for people back home and and then seeing it start to come to fruition is is gonna be really exciting. Can you speak a little bit more to the vision and kind of mission that you have for Silverback Coffee of Rwanda and ultimately, you know, where you see that going? Uh, for me, it's I wanna obviously continue supporting the local farmers back home. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I want to produce a great product, uh, but I, I want it to grow. I, I want it to grow as far as uh, here. I want it to grow as far as in Africa. Uh, I, I'm not looking at it as a Starbucks, but I want to look at it as a, a place where people can connect and get together and learn, but enjoy a great product uh, that also gives back. So we, we, we currently work with the Gorilla Doctors uh, organization. I'm, I'm a board member of, uh, so we help the, uh, the gorillas back home. Uh, and I'm also helping, uh, other organizations like, uh, uh, UGHE, which was a foundation that was started with, uh, uh, a really close friend that passed away this year. His name is Dr. Paul Farmer. And, uh, Dr. Paul Farmer started, uh, this initiative of, one, it's kind of like uh, healthcare. It's a healthcare initiative uh, that he started in Rwanda and Haiti. Uh, so I'm supporting that, uh, and I'm also helping support uh, building homes for Rwandans. But 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 through coffee, everything is done through coffee. Uh, coffee is going to introduce uh, people to um, being able to make money. Uh, as far as farmers are concerned, we started a little loan, uh, little loan um, uh, where people can go get loans and, and help their own family and friends back home. So yes, I want to I want to see it grow, but I also want it I want it to do good as it grows, uh, not just you know be one big entity uh, and 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 go from there. Jack, when people ask you, where is home? What do you say? I say, 
America and Rwanda. I say both. And I say both because one, everything I have accomplished, I accomplished here. Home is where my blood is from. My mom still lives there. Uh, my sister lives there. So it's both. My wife is American. She's from here. So for me, home is America and Rwanda. But they both represent two pieces that make a whole, kind of, for me. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's I, I was born there, but I became a man here. You know, um, I, I, it, America gave me refuge, but it also made me a man. Africa brought me into this life, you know? So I, it's both. I, I, I can't say one is more home than the other. Uh, yeah. It's funny because my son has asked me that. Mm-hmm. My son says, Daddy, you grew up here. Mommy's American, but you're from, so where's home? <laughs> He's asked me that. Uh, innocently. <laughs> yeah. um, well, you know, Jack, just just hearing your story, and I've known you, and we've had the chance to, you know, I, I've tasted the coffee. It's amazing. We had a chance to work together on a pop-up with Bristol, and, you know, Man. just hearing your story, again, is incredible. It It is uh, heart-wrenching just to hear what you've gone through, um, but it's amazing, and it really kind of makes me appreciate the game on a deeper level and like appreciate it from my own perspective and my own experience with it, just hearing what it has done for you um, and what you're doing with it. Uh, I just really am honored uh, and humbled for, to have you on this show and, and to share this with our audience. So I can't thank you thank enough. You. Uh, where can people find the coffee? Where is it available and where are your locations? Well, we have a, a coffee shop in downtown LA. It's at 400 South Hope Street. It's in, it's in the, one of the high rises. We're in the lobby area. Uh, we actually just closed the one that where we had the pop up. We just closed that and relocated to a better location. Uh, you can find us uh, at uh, Trader Joe's uh, in Southern mm-hmm. California. Uh, we're in the process of trying to grow to all the Trader Joe's throughout the country. Um, they've promised us that, so we'll, we'll, we'll see if that happens. But, but, but they're happy with the product. And you can always go online at silverbackcoffee.com and we'll, you can find us there also. Um, Amazing. And yeah. I know, Dave, you got a question to ask him before we get out of here. Ah, yes. Uh, uh, the famous uh, question. The fa- we, we end with one famous question, Jack, and, and just listening to you. And, and by the way, I just want to echo what Jake said. Just so much gratitude for your sharing Thank you. what you have with us. And, uh, and I, it's, it's touching. It's moving. It's motivating to hear how basketball like, lives in you and, and, and live through you and you live through it. And so this final question for you is it's a fill in the blank question. If this world was more like basketball, then this world would be blank. If this world was more like basketball, then this world would be a dynasty. <laughs> All right, strong. It would be a dynasty. We would be winning, dynasty. winning. We would be winning, winning, winning. We would just be a dynasty. <laughs> Too much Laker influence. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Jack. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. And again, you know, I, I agree with the both of you. Basketball is, is truly, it, it, it's a different kind of sport. Like, it really is. It's just five, five individuals just all on the same page, you know. And, and what I just realized is you do both. You're on offense and you're on defense as a group. You just don't do one thing. You, it's a two-way street when you play basketball. So, you know, you don't focus on only going in one direction. You also have to go this way. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Words of wisdom for Jake. <laughs> Pass the ball, Jake. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.